Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Before I introduce um, my guest, my good friend, I would just like to want you to be aware of a new Facebook group we've created. Um, it's You can go to Facebook if you want to join it. It's called LGBTQ and Allies in Wards, Stakes, and Missions. It's a pretty narrow-focused Facebook group. It's just focused for those that are trying to put together church-sponsored or church-supported LGBTQ activities, firesides, talks in their local area of influence, a ward, a stake, a mission, seminaries, and institute. And so if you'd like to join that group, there's about 700 in there, and um, people are trying to put together stuff around the country, and my guest is involved in some of those, but often they're doing it in a vacuum. So the purpose of this group is to kind of connect everybody that's trying to do this um, so they're not starting from scratch, not um, having to develop their own presentations, content, um, and so that um, the community within the church that wants to do this has a place to sort of share ideas. And with that, I'll introduce my guest, Kurt Nielsen. Welcome to the podcast, Kurt. Uh, it's great to be here with you, Richard. Kurt is Zooming in from California. Kurt was on episode 147. That's almost 200 episodes ago. Um, one of my very favorite podcasts. But I listened to Kurt's episode on uh, Mike Gregson's platform. Great friend of both of ours. His platform is called Come Towards Delight. And you were episode 52 recorded in early June. And it's been a couple of years since I've listened to your story. And there was so much new stuff you shared in that podcast. All these nuggets that could create a whole podcast, just about a phrase you said. I listened again to that podcast this morning in preparation for this podcast, listeners. And I listen to podcasts when I go on a walk in the morning. And I just, I've learned to bring my glasses so I can type on my phone. And it took me an extra 20 minutes to get through the walk because I just stopped and kept writing little notes to myself for this podcast because that's who Kurt is, the man of many golden nuggets and many gospel insights. And so we're going to, Kurt, will you introduce yourself to our listeners if they've never heard of you? Um, yes. Uh, my name is Kurt Nelson, and I grew up in a little town called Hiram, Utah, which is about five miles south of Logan, and I still have quite a few family members up there. And I went to Utah State University, um, had got a degree in landscape architecture, and I've done something along that line for a career. Um, for the last uh, 25 years, I've owned my own business, which uh, is a landscape business, and we deal mainly with high-end coastal residential properties. Um, I served a mission in Scotland and Northern Ireland, and uh, I met my wife after I finished school, and we have been married 30 years. Um, coming up 31 in November. We have three children. Our oldest is 29. And her and her boyfriend live in Salt Lake and uh, with his three children. And she is studying, getting, studying to get her master's and um, to become a therapist. So she's going to the University of Utah 
And my middle son is going, he's working on his PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's married with a daughter and his wife works for a, a company there. And my youngest um, is just changing jobs. He also lives in Salt Lake. He's going to be working for Adobe. And um, he uh, just is loving hiking. And he's just a really delightful son, all my children. And my wife, Mary, is... Um, she is somebody I would describe as um, as just just like this beautiful steward, whatever she's giving, you know, whatever she's giving. And she just does everything so well and loves Jesus. And, and that's been a really anchor for me in my journey, too, is I have this wife that just loves God and loves Jesus and has tremendous faith. And, um, and she uh, and I have been walking um, through life, uh, you know, more than half of my life, which is crazy to think about. Um, so that is, uh, I live in Yorba Linda, California, and that is in North Orange County, California. And uh, it's a beautiful community. We have a lot of hills that uh, our community's built on. But about every three years, we, we think our city's going to burn down. But, you know, other than that, it's just uh, it's a beautiful place to live. So that's, that's me in a nutshell. Thanks for that. And um, on episode one, whatever that I said that number was, listeners, 147, Kurt shared his story as a gay Latter-day Saint. And it was very helpful for me. And... I think our joint prayers, if you're LGBTQ, Kurt's been on this road for a while. I think you're my age, Kurt. Um, starts with a big six. I'm 60. I think you're about the same age. Yeah, I just barely turned 61, so I'm squeaking ahead of you. So you're maybe sure. a year older. <laughs> um, but as I've listened to you and if we've interacted, I just sense you're in a really good spot. And that hasn't come easily. And I think that that can be really helpful for other LGBTQ Latter-day Saints that are trying to get into a good spot with their life. And I think you do a really good job of engaging Latter-day Saints in this topic because you're pretty safe. I think you even used that word on the prior podcast um, on Mike Gregson's. You're pretty safe. And I think you've helped people that are wanting to step in the space feel pretty safe engaging with you and your podcasts and personally to help more people understand. So you're doing really good work, but it isn't easy as you shared in that last podcast. So why don't we pick it up? Um, you, you, that was maybe, I don't, you, tell me about the podcast we did together. Was that sort of your first public um, thing you did? And what were your hopes that that would accomplish? And in reality, what happened? Yeah, um, that one actually was my um, first public thing I did. It was very God-driven. And I was at a conference in St. Louis, just to give a little background. And it was sort of the evangelical, um, sort of like North Star, the evangelical version of North Star. And, uh, and they love music. I mean, 
I was like, I'm so bored when I come to our church now after their worship music. Um, but I was there and I was enjoying the conference and and I got to a I got to a place where I was just pondering about my path forward. And I just had this really strong impression from God saying, I want you to come out. I want you to share your story. And that was a really challenging thought for me because I had come to a place where I felt enough seen. At least that's the story I was telling myself. My wife knew, my children knew, friends, um, certain people. And here was God telling me, no, I want you to, to share this. And he said, and I'm thinking, well, how's that? How's that going to look? And I again had this impression, God said, I'll be in the driver's seat and I'll tell you when and how. And so a couple months later, um, again, I had this really strong impression to reach out to you and offer um, sharing my story. And um, so that's how that sort of that's how that came about. And then it became sort of a tool for me to use and my wife to use to share with friends, extended family, and uh, and church leaders. And so I really made an effort just to just to put it out there to share it with significant people in my life. And you know, it was interesting, Richard. I I think at the time I had this just thought in my head that God is asking me to do this for these specific reasons that I was just thinking about, you know, maybe it was more in my head, but hey, I could be such a resource in this space um, to, you know, to my local leaders. And, and yet, as I offered myself in that space, um, it was just not received, I mean, in all honesty. And I mean, they're beautiful men and I love them and they've done beautiful things for me, but it was really sort of surprising for me because I'm like, wow, um, why wouldn't you jump at this chance, you know? And, and yet I began to see, begin to see not only in them, but I begin to see how much fear there is still in this space and this idea of like, oh, our people aren't ready for this type of discussion. And I have come to really realize, no, I think our people really are ready. Um, but for some reason, our leaders in some ways aren't ready. And I'm not even, and I think that's even more of a local push down because I, I look at how our general authorities will talk about this. And, and even in our, our handbooks, we're there's a suggestion that we should do a fifth Sunday on this. So this is just church trying to, I think, mush, you know, move this forward. And, and yet we still have sort of this idea that our people aren't ready. Um, I had one leader who told me that his biggest fear that this would cause division in our ward. And, and, and that was just really, really um, surprising to me. And, um, and I was, um, and he, he asked me, what are some ways you think you could offer, you know, some guidance in this? And I said, you know, one way is a fifth Sunday. I, I said, that's 
really what the church has already directed us to do, but one is just giving a faith, faith talk on the subject. And, and, you know, the leader just immediately having such a visceral negative reaction to that, to that suggestion. And, and it told me a lot because his response was, I would never allow that to happen because there's children, you know, there's children in our, you know, in our congregation. And I just thought, you know, that's that sort of tone deafness that we still seem to carry as a church. Like, yes, there are children, there are gay children, you know, and this is a subject that we certainly can talk about in a way that, you know, we don't perpetuate this continued cycle of our youth, especially where, you know, I was reading this study where, you know, our kids, these gay kids, it's somewhere around, you know, 11, 12, 13, that they they begin to finally tell themselves, you know, I'm gay or I'm LGBTQ. And yet it's not for another five years that they actually verbalize that to anybody. And, and I think in every other area of our life in the church, we would realize that if we took our youth from say 13 to 18 and never guided them, you know, never talked about their sexuality, you know, how to steward that in a, in a beautiful way. I don't, I think we would realize we would reap the whirlwind, you know, with that. And yet we do that with our, with our gay kids, you know, repeatedly. And, and then we get them and then we're just sort of surprised, you know, that, we can sort of get them on missions. We can sort of get them through BYU. And then what we're seeing is almost the majority end up not only just leaving the church, but even jettisoning a belief in God, you know. And and I like, well, that's sort of the fruits, you know, that's the fruits. And it, it's so, you know, it's so perplexing to me in a lot of ways because, in every other area of our gospel, I think every principle, practice, policy, theology, I would say that we have such beautiful fruits that flow out of all those things. The word of wisdom, temple service, um, you know, having callings, priesthood blessings, you know, the law of chastity. But yet, but we have this one, just this one aspect where where the fruits just are not good you know and we see we see you know gay youth five times more likely to commit suicide and if we throw on the demographics like well what does what is a gay youth that's also religious does that decrease it's the only demographics out there that the more religious an LGBT kid is, the more it increases their rate of suicide, you know? And, you know, so when I, when I back up and I, and I still look at, you know, these beautiful men and, and this wonderful thing that we do in our wards and stakes, and yet we still are having sort of this blackout on, on, this, on this one subject. And it's just not, and it's like life and death. It's, it's, you know, it's not like, it's just, oh, well, you know, maybe they'll go inactive. It's like, you know, these kids are, are not doing well, you know. And, and then we're raising them to, um, to uh, 
not even believe in a God, you know, it's like, I mean, all my kids, it's like, I, you know, even if, even if your path is not in the church, I want you to have a belief. I want you, because there's something so powerful in that, you know, and God can play the long game in people's lives and our kids' life. If we're like, Hey, you know, take God with you, you know, isn't God beautiful. And yet, you know, I even look at my own life. It's like I had a really struggle around my relationship with God because I was so closeted and I was so shame-based in my life that that I could not, I mean, there was only two choices. Either God didn't love me, you know, I was the exception to his love because why would I be, you know, why would this be my experience? Or maybe there just isn't a God, you know? And I think that's where a lot of our LGBT kids end up, you know? And I think there's ways to counter that, um, but it just seems like we um, are not quite there yet. We see little sparkles here and there, and I'm sure you see it all over the place, these little sparkly moments and wards and stakes and, you know, individuals. But... um, it's, it is really challenging. I, I think that's been one of the, you know, really challenges for me over the last couple of years. I mean, there's been beautiful things, but then I've really been, I've really seen that. And, and that's been sort of a perplexing experience for me. Thanks for being so honest. You're so vulnerable in that podcast. And I think there would be a logical hope that then, um, we're trying to create Zion, Kurt, that you would be part of the team to help create Zion, especially on this issue within your circle of influence. And I think I like your word sparkle because we, you know, just a couple quick sparkles, listeners. There's a, a stake in California that did track and they, second day of track, they talked about modern day pioneers and they had um, a gay Latter-day Saint, Ben Shalati, come and speak to, came on track the whole time and um, there were other people there that were modern-day pioneers, and there was some hesitation in that stake from some of the parents. But once the stake president explained what they were doing and why they were doing it, um, and then had a follow-up fireside, everything I hear is it brought that stake together and moved that stake significantly forward uh, because they were willing to talk about sort of these more tender, sometimes complicated topics. And I think your word fear, Kurt, is a good one. I think a lot of leaders are are risk adverse or fear avoidance and want to stay in these safe places. But I think where a state can really create Zion or a ward or a group is if we're willing to talk about these more difficult subjects and especially have people walking the road like you um, participating. Another sparkling moment is um, I know there's a, a missionary that's serving. He's gay. He's in California. We're back to California um, he's out to his mission president, and his mission president, instead of saying, don't talk about this, which you understand creates shame, he said, please talk about this. Mm-hmm. And his mother talked about how he did a Q&A for the whole mission about this topic. And what a blessing for that whole mission on so many levels to have um, a gay missionary talking about um this subject within a mission. There's LGBTQ investigators, probably closeted LGBTQ missionaries. And to me, that's perfect love casteth out fear. And it brings us together as the body of Christ. Yeah, keep talking know, I, on anything. I'd love you to talk about belonging. And 
You made a yeah. really profound comment in the podcast um, about there. Sometimes we don't have a belief crisis; we have a belonging crisis, and you separated those two in a very unique way. Yeah, let me let me just back up just a second. Please then do. I'll jump into that. But some of the most beautiful experiences that I had after coming out, um, I just wanted to share a couple of those. So. There was just some really beautiful, profound experience that I've had, especially with some of my ward members. And, and all I've honestly felt from my ward is love and acceptance. And, and then it's really meaningful for me is when some of the members would actually move beyond that and actually have some curiosity about me and my experience. And so I've, I had a couple, like I had one man brother come over and he just wanted to ask questions. Cool. And then he just started just weeping. And I just said, what, what are you crying about? And he said, I just, you know, I just feel like how hard and complex this experience has been for you. And, and those things are so healing to me and i think for any um gay member of the church why why was that healing because it's because we sit most of us gay members we sit in this space of just shame and that if i'm known if i'm seen that what's going to flow out of that is rejection you know i'm going to be pushed out of the tribe so to speak and that's a really tough thing and that's why People like me would, you know, pretend to be straight for, you know, decades because that was my my idea. Hey, I can really fit in. Of course, I don't really feel like I'm fitting in because I don't feel really genuine in that experience. So for him to weep and just acknowledge that, like I it's just empathetic. And I had another um, just beautiful man that I, I go to church with and it was after the podcast and I'm just sitting there and he just reaches over and just holds my hand for like 10 minutes, you know, without saying anything. And yet I, I knew that I knew what he was conveying to me. Like, I see you, I love you and you belong. And so those, those ways that we can communicate those things, it's not always verbal, it's just those type of actions. And, and I think we, if members of the church are just aware of that, like, yeah, those things mean a lot to anybody. And I'm just talking about gay members, but marginalized members. It's like, there's this beautiful thing that we want to feel like we belong. And, um, and that, that's been a really journey for me um, as I have, you know, over the last two years, I've really began to think about this idea of belonging and my experience in church. And, and was it really a net positive or sort of a net negative for me? And it, which was sort of perplexing to me again, Richard, because it's like my issues weren't around belief. I had this like huge belief in God. I know he loves this gospel, you know, and I, I believe in priesthood power. I believe in temple. I, you know, I, I believe in Joseph Smith. I believe in the Book of Mormon. I've had profound experiences around all those. 
But here I am sitting in church for decades and decades and feeling like I don't, I don't really feel like I belong, you know? And, and I realized a lot of that was my own, I sort of was put in this box. I don't know if it was necessarily, I'm not going to take all the blame, but, you know, it's like it, I'm, in a tr- I'm in a culture that says, you know, you have to be a certain way. And, and for a lot of my life, being gay was not, was not going to be, or was not going to be a place at the table for that. And so, you know, so I'm like doing this thing where, you know, I'm just going to try to fit in, you know, instead of belonging, I'm just fitting in. And there's nothing good about just trying to fit in. There's, it's a, it's a really scary place because you could, if you, as soon as somebody decides I don't belong or they, or they expose me or say something or see something about me, they don't like, I, I can just be thrown out. And, um, and so I think I was just trying to fit in for like a lot of decades. And, and so when I did the podcast, this is my first attempt, like, here's me. Can I belong? You know, can I belong in this space? And, um, and my experience with my leaders wasn't helping me at all because their rejection really of what I wanted or thought I could offer them, um, I started looking at that like, oh, well, you know, maybe I don't belong. And then, and then you get this narrative too, like I, all you really need is Jesus, you know? And, and I'm like, well, if all I only need is Jesus, then why do I need a ward? You know, why do I need to be in this space? So I began to think, well, maybe that isn't what belonging's about. You know, it isn't this external thing for my leaders to accept or, or, there must be more to it than, than just like, hey, I love Jesus and Jesus loves me. So, you know, I'm just off on my merry way. But I had got to the place where I was, I was thinking about this idea of belief and belonging and just sort of wondering after the COVID thing, would I even, you know, go back to church? And my wife, uh, the first of the year, um, got really sick and we were, you know, it's, we're amazed that she survived. I mean, she was so sick. And so she's in the hospital for five weeks with infection and staff and septic and, and it's, it's horrendous, you know, and then I'm home and then I come down with COVID. I test positive for COVID. So I'm all alone, just home all by myself for three weeks, you know, She's in the hospital. I can't, you know, you couldn't visit her. It's like, it was just such a horrendous thing. But I I was sitting there thinking about, well, do I want to go back to church? And our um, ward had just begun to open up um, meeting in person. I think that was around March. And I I was coming to the place like, no, I I don't think this is, this has been a net positive for me, you know. And so I was, church had come on, or church was going to be that day, and I was just going to Zoom it and call it good. You know, Mary had come, Mary was home now, but she wasn't, you know, still recovering. And then I just had this really tremendous experience. You know, I had the Spirit come to me and say, Kurt, I want you to go to church. 
And there I will manifest my love for you. And, you know, one thing I've tried to do in my life when the spirit tells me to do something, even if I don't get it, I'm like, okay, I'll just jump into that. And so, you know, I shined my shoes, dusted off my suit coat and uh, got my shirt on and I went to church and I sat in the back and I'm sitting there and and I, there's this like beautiful talk that's given by this, this sister that I hadn't met who just moved in the ward. And she's talking about getting, having a baby out of wedlock. And she makes this just like beautiful statement. Like, I don't know what I would have done if I had not been seen by my ward family and my, my family and not judged. And, and I just thought, wow, that is so amazing. Um, it was really impactful to me. And then I had this experience of, of, of what she was saying happened to me in real time. So after the meeting's done, the sister behind me, you know, taps me on the shoulder and says, um, you know, how are you doing? And she said, it just broke my heart to think of you being home all alone with COVID and Mary not there. And she said, I want you to know that I prayed for you every day. And, and then I'm walking out and a, another um, brother, I wear a little heart rainbow pin to church. And he just said, hey, I just love your pen." And so in that experience, I'd like, okay, God's showing me here, here's this, here's this family, this, this community, and I'm showing you that my love is going to be manifested to you through them. Now, he could have. He could have poured open the, you know, open the heavens and poured down the spirit of love upon me in a sort of a spiritual way, but he chose to do it that way. He chose to show me his love. And, and so I've thought a lot about that. And like the thing that I really resonate with over the last couple of years is that I did Zion. And, and that's why I need a community because Zion is all about this idea of being one heart, one mind. And, and that is what exaltation, that is, that is probably one of the closest ideas we have of what exaltation is going to entail, this, this concept of Zion. And we don't do that. I mean, there is a sense that we, you know, Zion sort of flows out. I think we need to be unified in our own self and then we move out to our friends and family. But eventually there's this idea that exaltation is that we have come to a place where there is no hierarchy of love. And what I mean by that is that in exaltation, that everybody is on the same level. And we love everybody as deeply and intimately as the person next to us. In fact, if we stood our wife next to us and the person next to us, we would love as deeply and intimately as we do even our spouse. Otherwise, there would be a hierarchy of love in that space. And then it could not be Zion. And, you know, so when I look at Zion, and I just had some impressions about it, I, 
I look at it as a place where we're all just sealed together. You know, we're unified in complete unity, brotherhood, sisterhood. And I think like, well, then wouldn't my, you know, being gay or straight, isn't that sort of irrelevant in that space? I mean, it's just sort of an irrelevant idea because we're just all in this unified, loving place. And, um, and I love that idea of Zion. And I, I've thought a lot about that. And because I love that idea of Zion, I started serving in the temple um, a few months ago because I love that idea of sealing. And, and I love the idea that our, even our marriages, everything's a type. You know, we, we, God puts us together in these marriages, these sealings, and they're never meant to be, you know, the end and end, and end all. They're just a type. It's like, how do I learn to take this, this person that is so different from me and learn how to be unified in heart and mind? And then how do I take that? Once I learn that, how do I move that out to my children, my neighbors, my religious community? And how do I push that out, you know, into the world? And and I think that's, to me, that answers a lot of the angst I had as an LGBT member. You know, when I would even think about exaltation, it seems so exclusionary to me in a lot of ways. It's like, oh, it's just these little pods, these little exclusionary pods of family, you know. And, and it's like, I, I think for most LGBT people, it's like, well, how is that happening? You know, that just seems another place to be excluded and marginalized. And I, my, just my impressions is I think we have got that sort of wrong. And I thought it was interesting, President Irene, in the April conference, you know, alluded to that. Um, and he, you know, he gave the quote, um, we don't have the details of family connections in the spirit world or what may come after we are resurrected. And so this is an apostle just saying, yeah, we might know some things, but we really don't know what this familial relationship is. As much as we've sort of been taught in our lives, like, oh yeah, I know exactly what it is. Here's a prophet, you know, prophet certain revelator saying, we don't, we really don't know. And so I can really extrapolate the idea of Zion. I think that's just such a beautiful Thing. And so that's why I need a faith community. That's why just loving Jesus isn't enough for me. You know, I need to be in a community where I can learn to love and give my heart and, and overcome differences and, tr- and learn how to treat everybody equal in that space and begin to level out that those hierarchies that we begin to see. You know, when I even in my own life, like, yeah, I'm always you know, more prone to notice and care for my wife, which I should, that's an earth life thing. But it's also taking that idea, like, how do I love people as deeply, you know, and beautifully as, as I do my family. It's a really good segment. Um, two thoughts come to my mind as I think of the city of Enoch, as you were describing Zion, and we use those sometimes um, to, to talk about Zion, but the scripture language is not the individuals of the city of Enoch were translated. It was the city of Enoch. 
And so I've always imagined, you know, so that is what you're describing, not individual sort of exaltation, but this beautiful community that was translated and the need for community. And perhaps they couldn't have been translated if they all just been on their little pods around the city of Enoch. It was the fact that they were together with a real sense of belonging, supporting each other, helping each other become something that couldn't be individually. Sometimes I think exaltation, we just look at these checklists and kind of do it in isolation. But I think what you're describing, what happened in the city of Enoch was a community effort. And and we need all. And then I think of the four things that have been so helpful to you, you've mentioned in this podcast, but other Latter-day Saints, I've, and there may be more that, and listeners, this isn't for Kurt, it's just for all of us to recognize the simplicity of what people did and how helpful it was for Kurt. And that to me is part of um, the beauty of sometimes ministering to people, this brother that came over your home and just listened. And he knew he couldn't do that at church in the hallway. He knew he couldn't do that over the phone. He just came over one-to-one. Um, the brother that held your hand, that was, you know, and how much that met. The sister that just asked you after church, and I'm getting a lot of listeners, I hope you're not. The sisters that came after church, you know, just at church asked, was just grateful you were there and the brother was glad to see your rainbow pin. And that's just, you know, all of us can do that kind of stuff. And I, so those are a couple of thoughts that come to my mind. I'll just turn it back to you to continue talking. Yeah, it was another idea I was thinking about Zion. And so my, my daughter went out to visit her brother in Philadelphia and they decided to go into Amish country. And, um, it's just my my son was telling me something that really struck him is their burial practice in the Amish. So they worship in sort of a communal way and live in a communal way. But in their cemeteries, they don't have like family plots um, or this is where the old sons are buried. It's just like the next when the next person dies, they just get buried in the next open plot, you know. And their ideas, like, because it doesn't matter. We are all family. You know, we're all community. And, and I just thought that was, like, so beautiful, you know, to me. It's just, just that idea of, of being family. And I had this, um, I love this quote. It's um, by John Stott. And he was a celibate evangelical theologian. And he said, gay people have an innate longing for community, dignity, respect, and family. And and then he goes on to say, if they can't find this in the church, the church needs to stop calling itself family. And I was really, you know, my heart was really touched by that idea. And, and I think the work that you do, Richard, um, and just sharing stories. And I, was, I would think that that's what you've found out, that the theme of all the different voices that you've heard, that they do have that longing for community, dignity, respect, and family. So the question is, how do we do that as a church? You know, how do we take our LGBTQ plus members and give them a place of community? You know, what would that look like? 
know, what, what is what what are the elements of that? How do we give them a place of dignity? How do we show them respect? And how do we create family for them? And the idea is we really have to push, really push against a lot of these narrow beliefs we've had around all those things, because we have tied so tightly into the idea that our community, our dignity, our respect, and our family is just a nuclear family-based experience. But it was interesting in church uh, or in conference in April when, you know, the leaders are saying, hey, we're a post-nuclear family church. You know, the nuclear family is the minority experience in our, you know, in our gospel. So when we have the majority who's looking, and I'm not just telling LGBT, single, sister, divorced, you know, whatever, these marginalized groups, you know, that aren't fitting so neatly into that idea of nuclear family, we really have to get better of, of like, how do we create community with them? How do we create dignity, respect, and family? And there's ways to do that. I mean, there really is. If we just would begin to have the conversations um, and, and really think of us as individuals, like, so how do I create community? How do I, how do I expand my idea of family? So, you know, you know, bless them. If there is a, a gay member of the church that feels that God is calling them to live a celibate life, how do, I, how do I support that person in a way that they can flourish? And it isn't going to be like, hey, God will take, you just hang on and God will make it all right in the next life. And it's going to suck that you're going to be lonely, but it's going to be worth all the, you know, all the loneliness and depression and mental illness and, you know, suicidality. You know, you just hold on. That's not the gospel plan. You know, we are meant to have joy. And, and, if, and if a person is, is feels so called to do that, and there's so few of the hundreds, you know, six to 800,000 LGBT members in the church, so few of them remain. But can we just learn, like, okay, the ones that feel called, how do we do that for them? You know, how do I, how do you know that your family you know, that you're chosen family to me. How do we make these people feel chosen family? I, it is just, it's such a, such a wonderful concept if we just will dig into it a little bit. Talk about, I love that. And I recognize, I love everything you said about a gay Latter-day Saint and um, trying to be celibate and not pointing to the next life and real, recognizing the reality of their situation. Um, I think about the family proclamation that doesn't, you know, a doctrine that I believe in and support, but it doesn't really have a roadmap for that person to live the next six decades celibate. It, it isn't the answer to how to do that. You are providing the answer on how to do that by creating family and community and support. Just talk about more what we can do. It's interesting because I'll see, again, these little sparkly areas where people are experiencing that. And I, I have an evangelical man that I know, and he lives with uh, 
just this little nuclear family. It's a husband and wife with their two children. And they own a home together. And he helps raise their kids. And he's their godparents. And so it's, it's beginning to look outside that box. Um, you know, I think um, Ben Shalali has expressed different things that have been meaningful to him, like when people in his board will say, you know, every Sunday you're here, you know, you are here for dinner. I mean, it's, it's sort of those like, Hey, we always go over to the, we always go over to the in-laws for dinner. I mean, so it's making a place. And one one thing that really helped me understand that is um, there was a, there's an older sister in our ward that my wife is, been the visiting teacher, ministering sister for a lot of years. She's in her 90s now. And so my wife has been sort of ministering to her for, you know, 10 years or 15 years. And when she first started um, uh, working with her, you know, she decided, well, my first thing is to be her friend, you know, so she trusts me. She wasn't active. And then when she sort of had developed that level of connection and relationship, she said, she said, I want you to come to church. And when you come through those doors, I want you to stop. And I want you to look into the congregation and find me. And then I want you to come and sit by me. And this is your place every week. If without fail, you will never have to worry about where you're sitting. It is next to me in this chapel. And guess what? This lady became active, went through the temple, you know, um, and she comes to church and she feels loved. And and that's that space, you know, it's like, how do we create that space, that sense of community? And one of us, we need to start talking, like, what are the issues that affect these individuals? You know, whatever the marginalized group is, you know, again, if the minorities, if all we're doing is talking about the minorities now, we're in this post-nuclear church, that's not going to fly. It's like there is so much about this singleness that is occurring that we really need to come to grasp like, and put a lot of time and attention there. And how do we create, you know, how do we create that sense of um, intimacy that we all need to flourish? And it's, and it's got to be more than just like, hey, good to see ya. you. Know, hopefully see you next week. It really is pulling people into our lives in sort of a really intimate way. And then they can flourish. And then they can love Jesus. And then they can hold on to God and and then see where God wants to take them. And that you're going to be there regardless, you know. They're, they're staying in the church isn't a qualification for you to love them or be their friend. They're family. I mean, we don't. We don't do that with our own children. You know, they go different paths. We love them. We include them. And we just are, are so grateful that, you know, that we have them in our lives. I love that. And I love the, I don't know if you're getting an echo, Kurt, on me or if I'm just getting it myself. Well, good. I hope, when listeners, you aren't either. But I think of um, some of the talks that our leaders have given recently and you referenced, I think, Elder Gong and President Ballard that both talked about the majority of the members of the church are not married, sort of this post-nuclear family. And I think that's, I was glad they did that. And Elder Ballard in particular talked about belonging 
And I think that word will continue to bring traction in our wards and our stakes as we reflect as ward councils and as members what we can do to make sure everybody feels like they belong. Um, I saw yeah, without, you know, without that judgment around belief, because that's where we usually have went. Like if you don't want to be in church, it's a belief issue or a, or a worthiness issue. And it was interesting. I was reading this um, study on, it was, it was, they were studying evangelical gay Christians. And it was interesting that it was like 80, 80 some percent were not leaving their faith over theological issues. And these were all, you know, these are all churches that teach a traditional sexual ethic. Their reason for not attending church, almost their number one issue, it was feeling judged and that there wasn't a place for them to serve and to be considered equal in their, you know, in their offering um, to the faith. And, you know, we have work to do in that because, you know, I have friends, I have gay active friends, members of the church that are, have been former bishops, state presidents, mission presidents, elders quorum. Um, but almost without a fault is when they come out, and most of us always been very God-driven like me. It's interesting. God is telling these older men, like, I need you to do this. I need you to do this. And we can you know, speculate why he might be doing this, but I think it's pretty obvious. Um, but what happens is, and I have to assume, Richard, that God knew they were gay when he called them, you know, through revelation and inspiration to his leaders. And they did beautiful jobs. But the thing that that's what is happening is, all of it, it's like as soon as they've come out, all that has dried up for them. I mean, and, and, I, and I only can assume that now that their leaders know that they're gay, they have a big problem with it. And, and I want, so I remember asking one of my leaders, I said, so you knowing me that I'm gay, would that preclude you from giving me any calling? You know, I live worthy. I, I'm a temple worthy going guy. And he, and he said, no, but I don't, I honestly don't really believe that we're there yet because I, I just look around, where are they? You know, where's, where's our active gay bishops and state presidents and mission presidents and general authorities. And um, I have a friend that's an elders quorum president, which I think is amazing. He's openly gay, um, but it is just so rare. And again, if that's, if that's that big part of respect dignity like now that you know that I'm gay I am pushed down and out and away from really actively participating only maybe in these very fringy type of callings um there's a lot that you know there's a lot that's being communicated there unfortunately and I, I hope someday we'll we'll see see something different happen there I'm glad you brought that up. No one's brought that up on the podcast, and you would know that road well as you're well-connected with other gay, active Latter-day Saints. And if we're creating Zion, um, people's sexuality shouldn't be a factor in their church callings. And in fact, I think it would be really good for younger LGBTQ Latter-day Saints to have role models serving in senior church assignments to help them know that they belong. And people like him are well, like 
them are welcomed and valued and actually contributing to be the body of Christ and creating Zion. And there's just fear right now. And I, and that's just an, sometimes our podcast guests want to get into what doctrine might or could change, but this podcast and most of them are just what can we do better within our current doctrine? And there's huge low hanging fruit, the things that you're describing. <laughs> So to speak, yeah, can yeah, be we're, done. we're not oh. pushing, you know, I had a leader go, well, do you think God's going to, you know, change the temple ceiling? And I said, how would I know? You know, let's talk about things that we can do that yeah. would really make a difference in, in the gay members that are around us um, and are so often so closeted or so, you know, so hidden that we sometimes our warts and stakes think, oh, well, there's nobody like that here, which, <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably, you know, because they're gone, which is so sad. And why are they gone? Have we ever wondered, like, what could we do so they don't go? And again, that is, again, back to those four things, community, dignity, respect, and family. And, and that's, you know, that's the key. And we're set up as a church to do those things so well in almost every other area. Why can't we take it and just focus on this community that is suffering? I mean, we're the, I mean, I've often said that I think the, the LGBTQ plus are really the canary in the mind for the church. And what I mean by that is that they are the marginalized of the marginalized. And how could we ever expect to become a Zion people if we cannot get this right? If we cannot open our hearts and arms and lives and, and bring them into the body of Christ, it's not going to work to say we don't need that part of the body anymore. You know, we'll just cut that off. You know, I don't need that eye. I'll pluck it out, you know, all you end up is just with one arm and one eye. I mean, that, that's not a good thing. And, and again, how do we receive Christ if we are not throwing open the doors to all of, you know, all of God's children, you know? Um, so there's a, I love this just paragraph. This is by Robert A. Reese. And, um, he just said that the primary purpose of the church is to make it possible for us to experience the love of God. And, you know, and I've thought about that. I'll read a little bit more here, but I don't know if that would be the answer for a lot of people. What, you know, if you just said, what is the primary purpose of the church? And, and I, this resonates with me. Again, the primary purpose of the church is to make it possible for us to experience the love of God. Ideally, all of the church's programs and activities should reflect this purpose. Perhaps locked in our deepest pre-existence memories is a remembrance of what it felt like to be held in the loving embrace of our father and mother in heaven. I am convinced that that was the purest experience we've ever felt, an experience so profound and so joyful that when we are in touch with it, we are motivated to spend our entire lives trying to get back into their presence so that we might feel that love both physically and spiritually for eternity. 
and and that's where I that's where I see it. Um, and I and I see that in so many areas of my our faith, and and that's why I stay, because I I think we get that right in so many ways, and there's so many beautiful fruits. I just want this one area to to also flourish, you know, and good fruits to flow from it. And I I think it can. I think it can. I love that you've got all these golden nugget quotes and insights and perspectives that are helpful for me. I think listeners of Elder Ballard's talk about stay in the boat, a talk I like, but I, in Twitter this week, I've sort of been saying, what is our responsibility to help others feel like they belong in the boat? Um, Cause I think we can make the boat really strong and we can make the boat represent the city of Enoch and so I think about what we can do to help LGBTQ people belong, people that don't have a temple recommend belong, people from a different political party, people that are single. And so I think, you know, we don't want people to leave the boat, but I think it's okay to have an internal discussion and say, what can we do to make it so that more people feel like they belong? Because I think your point about people that leave the boat, it's often not a, a belief issue. It's a feeling that the boat just isn't where they feel comfortable. They don't feel the love of God. They don't feel support. They hear negative comments of people about like them at church. Um, Then I think of Elder Gong's talk about creating room at the inn, and that's another wonderful visual imagery um, of the Good Samaritan story in the inn and our responsibility to create a feeling of belonging at the inn. And I think Elder Gong talked about everybody should feel welcome at the inn. So I love those kind of visual imageries of then what can I do and what can we do in our wards and and families and and stakes to create a feeling of belonging. Um, But I think about the youth in that stake that went to track and saw all these modern-day pioneers, including a great Latter-day Saint. I don't think, Kurt, anybody in that stake is suddenly going to be gay because they went on track with a gay Latter-day Saint. I think we both know that. Well, and I maybe just, five years ago they would have thought that, but I'm <laughs> glad they've moved beyond. But I just think <laughs> that stake is in a better place, and those youth are in a better place. And those youth that wondered, um, even if our church is a safe place for gay people, if they're straight, saw that trek and thought, this is a church I want to be involved with, because I want to be involved in a church that is working really hard for marginalized groups to feel like they are welcome. A lot of this younger age group, and we've got kids in this age group, look at our faith and say, we're all faith and saying, not necessarily what is it doing for me if I'm not marginalized, but what is it doing for the most marginalized people? Um, Because they're wired that way and they want to see full inclusion for marginalized people. That is the faith community they want to be a part of. And so I think that was one of the reasons this stake decided to do this track was to was to address that head on as a way to keep people, so to speak, in the boat by believe just seeing the good the church can do for all groups of people and seeing that in a real way. So I'll turn it back to you for just um, the anything else you want to share with no time limit. <laughs> so, you know, one thought I had is, um, is it seems to me, I mean, this is just me observing sort of the culture in the church around LGBTQ people. And, you know, I've been observing this for quite a few years. And, you know, and I'm grateful we've got to the place where it's sort of a catch-22. I'm grateful for the love part. 
You know, we just need to love. We just need to love. Um, but the part that I think is really still challenging is like, we love you, but we don't know what to do with you. And, you know, and that's evolved over time, you know, 20 years ago, um, not only our church, but every church thought they knew exactly what was going on and what to do to fix it. And, um, and now we're just saying, you know, we love you. We just don't know what to do with you. And I guess in, you know, in one sense, I, what I'm sort of observing is that I think it's pretty obvious. And I would think it's pretty obvious to the leaders that there isn't really a, a big space, you know, for a lot of, a lot of the LGBT members to, to flourish, you know. And, and maybe we as a church are just making it a little more gentle process for them. Instead of being, you know, kicked out of their families, their families love them, their communities love them and their space for them. But I think the thing that I just really crave, um, and I don't know how to get there really, but it's like, how do we, again, have our LGBT people that we love love Jesus, you know, and love God, you know, wherever their path leads them. And I think it's nice that where it's not so wrenching when our LGBT members leave, you know, because a lot of times they were just ostracized from their families and communities and everything. But I still, I still crave that. Like, how do we, how do we hold on you know, to Jesus and God, because Jesus and God has done everything for me. I mean, he guides and leads me, and, and where I'm at today is because of him, and I don't know where I'd be if I had not had Christ in my life and guiding me, because my life is so atypical, and my experiences are so atypical from the majority around me. And I can't imagine just sort of trying to just wing this, this experience. And it's like, you know, I'm getting to that place, as I mentioned, like, I don't know if I go back to church and God's like, no, 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 that's not what's going to be best for you. I'm going to take, <laughs> you need to be in church and you need to feel my love there. And this is how you're going to do that. That is a God-driven experience that I wouldn't have had if God wasn't in my life. And so... I, I really crave that. I crave that we get to that place where that's where our marginalized feel. I mean, I think that's what Christ was always doing in the marginalized love. You know, he's like, I love God. I'm doing the work of the Father here. So you, as an individual, can know that God loves you, regardless, you know, of where your path takes you. Thank you, Kurt. Um, you just have so many insights about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about being a gay Latter-day Saint, about belonging. And I think our prayers that as you listeners were listening, that thoughts came into your mind. If you're LGBTQ, about your best path forward. If you're an ally or local leader, that can be the same. Um, what you can do within your circle of influence um, um, just to create change. Um, you could join this Facebook group. I'll mention this Facebook group again. It's called LGBTQ and Allies and Wards, Stakes, and Missions. 
can just search for that on Facebook. There's a lot of people doing a lot of good things um, all throughout the church. I like Kirk's word sparkles, these little sparkles. So it's maybe this Facebook group is making more people aware of the sparkles. I think that was your word. That, that sounds very gay, Richard. That's that's okay with me. And um, so that people just don't have to reinvent the sparkle from scratch. They can sort of um, scale what they're doing to other words and stakes. Because I think a lot of people do want to do this, but they just don't know how. And I agree with you that our leaders are giving air cover to do this. Maybe not directly say, go do this for LGBTQ. I think you mentioned Fifth Sunday, there's been some air cover, but I think there's enough air cover that local leaders can do this. And I think there may be a little bit of initial pushback in your stake. And some people look at it as a political issue. And if you can kind of help them understand this is a, this is a pastoral issue, or this is a covenant keeping issue as far as bear, mourn, and comfort, then once you get on the other side of doing these events and starting these events in your words and stake, um, usually, um, they're just incredible events to bring people together and open the door to vulnerable and authentic discussions that we need to have. So um, thank you, Kurt. Any last words? Yeah, I just, it's, it's interesting. I, if you'll humor me with this. Um, Go for it. Go for it. I, I was just looking through um, some files and I ran across this this letter that I wrote my son, Jacob. And I wish I would have, you know, I wish I would have read it more recently because it really does exemplify really my life and and what I think about the gospel. So I'm just going to read it real quick. Um, So dear Jake, The typical first question we ask when faced with our mountains of life are, can I do this? I have been convinced of late that this is the wrong question. I think the question needs to be, what do I want? Is it worth it? Will I gain valuable growth in trying? Is it worth trying even if I fail? So we look at the day and our focus isn't about avoiding risk and failure and pain, it's about putting our hands to the handcart and proceeding toward Zion. Did it matter to the countless many who never reached Zion? Do you think they saw their experience as a waste because they never stepped foot in the Salt Lake Valley? I don't think, I don't think so, because they had already decided what had the most value to them regardless of the outcome. They could not know the ultimate outcomes of their choices any more than we can. But what they did know, it was worth trying. And in the trying, they found their joy and adventure and excitement and ultimate meaning to their lives. Jake, I want to climb the mountain. I want to reach the summit and see eternity before me. But I don't know if I'll reach it. I believe it's worth the risk, even if I fail. What is the alternative to choose the easy, no-risk path, which has nearly 100% chance of success, or the path where everything has to be put at risk? The one way is the life of fear and cowardness, and the other of courage and adventure. So always start with the question, what do I want? And to hell with it, if I can't do it or not. We are not alone in this path. Jump off the boat and try your hand on walking on the water, Go find the plates of brass. Leave Eden for the lone and dreary world. Stand with your back to the Red Sea. 
with the armies of Pharaoh crashing down upon you, leave Zion, leave Nauvoo, rush towards Goliath. If you never do these things, you'll never feel Christ's hand reaching out to you. You'll never be led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand what you are to do. You will never be able to create a world by your sweat and toil. You will never experience the seeds being parted for you. You will never experience Zion, and you will never understand that God is greater than anything that Satan or the world can bring against you. So my precious son, choose what it is that is worth it. You are deeply loved. You are prayed for. You are amazing in your talents and qualities. I will always be your biggest fan no matter what. Know that, my dear, dear Jacob, love dad. That's sort of my mission statement. That is a tender letter to your son, Jacob. I think that's how our heavenly parents would talk to us. Um, and just they would, the hope that they would give us, the love that they would instill within us, the vision of the future. So thank you for concluding with that, Kurt. And this is, we'll conclude at this point in the podcast. If you've heard an echo on my mic, apologize. Um, you haven't heard it on Kurt's. And thank you, Kurt Nielsen, for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>